Swing and a drive! Welcome to Red, White, and Blue Jays, the podcast home of Blue Jays Fans UK, a group connecting Blue Jays fans around the UK and beyond and telling their stories. And now, here's the host of Red, White, and Blue Jays, Steve Hunter. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Red, White, and Blue Jays, the podcast where we get to talk to Blue Jays fans around the world. Hope your week's been okay since we last spoke. Obviously, lots has happened between the last episode and today's. Firstly, we came out of the Winter Olympics with a gold and a silver, which was super exciting. But of course, that all delves into insignificance with the terrible news that's happening in the Ukraine at the moment. So our thoughts are particularly with that nation and with those who are being affected by all that's happening there. Today, I had the real joy of catching up with Barry Davis. You, I'm sure, remember Barry from his time at Sportsnet and bringing to us some of the most iconic games as part of the team there, uh, particularly in the 2015 and 16 seasons. So this one I was looking forward to and Barry didn't disappoint. So sit back, enjoy as we chat to Barry Davis. The podcast home of Blue Jays fans UK. You're listening to Red, White and Blue Jays. Guys, welcome to another edition of Red, White and Blue Jays. Really excited about today's episode because we have the legend that is Barry Davis with us. Barry, uh, yeah, yeah, no, that is you, sir. Are you not referring to the professional wrestler that (laughs) has the same name? (laughs) I don't know him. If you Google Barry Davis, he's usually the one that comes up. Oh, okay. It's funny. When I was growing up, there was a a Radio 1 disc jockey who was called Gary Davis. And all Mm. I can hear in my head every time I think of your name is is his jingle. So anybody who's listening who's anywhere approaching 50 will know who I'm talking about. But Barry, thank you so much for spending some time. I know it's my pleasure, Steve. This is great. And, uh, you know, I got my brew. You are? uh, I don't know. My, okay, my let Beatles it be. Ah, very good. For those listening, right. he's got his Let It Be Beatles, Beatles uh, mug there. Have you got a cup of tea? Are you a tea or a coffee drinker in the morning? No, I'm a coffee drinker. I do like a cup of tea once in a while, and I should drink more of it because it's good for you. Yeah. But uh, maybe I'll have my wife put the kettle on once uh, we're done here. Excellent. Good man. Well, thanks so much for spending some time. Today is all about just hearing some Barry Davis stories, hearing a, bit, a little bit about you. I'd love to kick into a little bit of your music stuff as well. Perhaps we'll do that to, towards the end, because I know that's sure. a big, big part of your life. Um, but for, for anybody listening in, just give us a little bit of a flavour of growing up, <clears throat> where you, where'd you come from, all that sort of stuff, childhood memories, before we sort of hit into the Blue Jay stuff. How long's your podcast, Steve? Oh, well, as long as you want it to be. I mean, we're normally, <laughs> normally, normally around an hour, but, well, you know, let's go where we uh, so let, let's let's do a, a condensed version of my life story. Um, I was actually born just outside Miami, Florida, believe it or not, with uh, a father who was uh, Canadian and mother American. They were both in uh, show business. My dad was a singer. My mom was a dancer. And they uh, ended up settling in Florida, had three kids, including me. And then we moved up to Canada uh, for reasons I still don't understand. But, uh, you know, why did we leave sunny Florida for wintry Toronto? But we did in 1971. 
And uh, I think I was always influenced by the fact that they were both in show business. And I always wanted to do something in that line. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. But one of my earliest memories, well, two of them, number one was my mother uh, was probably one of the biggest Tom Jones fans on the planet. She absolutely adored him. And when I was a little kid, she would put the, the records on uh, and do her housework and she wouldn't have to tend to me because I would take the dog's leash, pretend it's a microphone, and I would sing along with these albums. And this was kind of like my, it kind of knew, well, I didn't know at that age, but, you know, I was three or four, but um, my family kind of knew that, you know, this, this kid has this desire to entertain people. And uh, as I got a little bit older, maybe 10 or 11, my mother gave me a little tape recorder. And most kids use those tape recorders to play tapes, but I used them to take around to the park with uh, a little microphone. And I would literally interview kids on, in, in the playground and just talk to them into the microphone. You know, I would record my parents when they would fight. I, uh, I would, yeah, I mean, if I had editing material <laughs> back then, I'd be very grateful you. about that. Yeah. So I always knew I wanted to get into something in that field. I just didn't know what. And I stumbled into music when I was 16 because two of my closest friends uh, were musicians and they used to just go and jam after school. And I said, I'd love to come and you know, watch you guys. So I went and I decided to start singing along with them just for fun. I said, can I join your band? And they're like, sure, uh, we need a bass player. I said, I'm in. What's a bass? <laughs> and uh, I had never played the bass before. And within two weeks, they taught me a few easy things. And we were playing a house party. And that was it. I mean, you know, I was I was into music and I couldn't get out of music. But baseball in particular was always my my sport. Uh, I always was a huge sports fan growing up, mostly baseball, hockey, um, later became a, a basketball fan. Never really, really got into uh, American football. I mean, I could watch it, but I was never really glued to it. Um, and I also never really at, at that time, I never got into football. Uh, British football, right? Uh, you know, again, as I've gotten older, I've gone, learned to appreciate the other sports. But baseball was always always my my big thing. And uh, I remember going to the games at Exhibition Stadium before the Dome was around and always thinking, oh, I'd love to, like, either be the guy that's cleaning the, the field or the tarp or something. As I got a little bit older and then now they're moving into the Sky Dome, I remember taking uh, – my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, and I was probably about, you know, 20, 21. And I remember looking into the booth, seeing Tom Cheek and Jerry Howard calling the game. And I said, one day I want to be in that booth. I want to be in that booth. And, you know, a lot of things happened. Uh, the full-time job I had at the time, I got laid off. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was 22, 23 years old. My wife said, go back to school. So I uh, went to uni and I took a, a course on radio broadcasting and was fortunate enough between my first and second year to get a part-time job, working overnights, pushing buttons, but I was in. And once I was in, I knew that there was no way I was gonna get out of this. And I did everything I could, work my way through. And you know, all these years later, I was able to you know, move from radio to TV and uh, lived a dream job for quite a few years, Steve, I'll tell you, that was uh, some absolutely incredible, some of the most incredible moments of my life. But it's also a chapter that I'm now past, and I can look back at it fondly and say there were some great times. And I will tell you, I mean, if if I ever got a call saying we want you back, 
I would probably give it some serious thought. I do enjoy everything I'm able to do in my life right now. And I enjoy being with my family, but there's just something about being in that camera bay. And, you know, even if it was on a part-time basis, that would be ideal. I think that after everything, uh, the one thing that did me in more than anything was the travel. Uh, it was just, see, it was a crap load of travel. Uh, I literally missed seeing my only son grow up where one minute he's a newborn and next minute he's 21 years old. And I'm like, well, how did that happen? So I'm making up for a lot of lost time now. I know I get asked a lot how much I miss it and whether I would go back and do it again if the opportunity came. And I, I like I said, I'm still on the fence. Uh, I, I try, I've learned as I've gotten older to try to live in the now, you know, to try to be as mindful as possible. And right now, the best thing I can be doing is chatting with you on your podcast. Excellent. Yeah, well, we're, we're grateful for it. And we'll definitely dive into some of those those memories because I think um, certainly a lot of the guys here in the UK probably picked up on the Jays, particularly in that sort of 2015, 2016 seasons. When, when May I ask you? I know it's your show, but sure. I, I'm dying. How? How? Like, I, mean, I know. I mean, cricket's big. Football's big. I've had a lot of friends from England and I remember when I was younger asking about baseball and they were right. like, you mean rounders? And I'm like, yeah. no, rounders is kind of, so how, how did there become such a big core of major league baseball fans? I, well, I, I think, I think probably a couple of, couple of things. Uh, one access into Canada and, and the connection between the UK and Canada is, is probably sure. stronger than, than, than the States in some respect. There's more yeah. commonality in, in terms of ground. Obviously, Toronto's on the east, well, east coast time zone anyway, so it's it's more accessible. Um, so I think a lot of people that I know follow the Jays because they've had family that have emigrated to Canada, have heard about this baseball thing, and and have picked up on it it that way. A lot of us, including my story, would be in and around a vacation uh, where I had some friends who had moved to Hamilton, and uh, was invited out in '94. So my my first experience of the Jays was just after the two World Series it's a wins. Crappy year to get involved. <laughs> it was a pretty bad. Uh, I've said it many times on this on this pod, but um, yeah, I went to my first game was four days before the the strike of '94. So I I was a, a whisker away from never seeing baseball. Or, or, well, it's or, a good thing you went when you did, right? Uh, uh, totally. Yeah, I loved it. We uh, wouldn't be talking right now. That, exactly, Barry. I mean, I just fell in love with the game uh obviously the city was still pumping because of the two world series the the, the mm. sky dome was full it's rocking and uh yeah just just that one game was enough for me and of course coming back to the uk then no internet no coverage nothing so the only way i could find out what was happening would to go to our local news agent and uh, find a copy of usa today or something like that and read a little bit wow. about about how the games were going course then it went into the strike and you know rest it rest is history but today it's not about me it's all about you and and your story sure. but, but yeah lo loads of stories loads of people here uh, and we've got quite a lot of canadians who live here as well so part part of certainly the uk blue jay scene is a, a lot of expats that well keep, <laughs> keep your eye open for some property out that way i mean i, I yeah yeah the flat out there at some point where, where do you want to move to what, what part of what, what uh, any idea you tell me. Okay. You know, I'm a big Beatles guy, but I don't know if Liverpool would be the place where I'd want to live. Uh, maybe visit, but. Yeah. Well, Liverpool would be great, for, for, as I say, for music music scene for you. But mm. 
you've been born in Florida, then you've got to come down to Bournemouth because Bournemouth is as back as close to Florida as we're going to get in the UK. South Coast, Done. sandy beaches. That's where we are. We're about two minutes from the beach here. So come and see us. Come and live in Bournemouth with us and uh, we'll make you a home somewhere, I'm sure. Oh. <laughs> Anyhow, so let's just rewind then. So you said baseball was one of the, the things that you grew up. Like, so did you play a lot at school? Was it was it something that... We didn't have a school team per se, um, but back in the day, and I, I don't know what it was like where, where you guys were growing up, but and it, this is how much the world has changed, right? I mean, back in the 70s, when we were kids, we would go to school, we'd come home from school, and we'd go out and we'd play sports. You know, in the wintertime, we'd be out in a parking lot playing hockey. Um, you know, we would hope that there was enough street lights so that when it got dark, we could still see what we were doing. Our parents would drag us into the house. In the summertime, we would be out uh, on, on a ball diamond or even a, a, an empty field and playing baseball all the time right? It was just our thing. We, we played and I did play organized for, for a couple of years, but uh, I grew up in a, in a family situation where we didn't have a lot of money and uh, we didn't really, you know, I wanted to play organized, but they just couldn't afford it. So it was mostly just, uh, you know, just a lot of fun baseball. And I uh, have an older brother who's seven years older than me. And I used to just go out and, uh, you know, he would pitch to me and I would pitch to him. And so it was one of those things where you know, I, I absolutely adored the game of baseball and I wanted to play. I never really thought, oh, I want to be a major leaguer. I wanted to be the person who was talking about the major leaguers, right? So in some ways, like I said earlier, just to kind of bring it full scale, that, that childhood dream was something that I was able to actually pursue in reality. Yeah. At what position would you be if you had made it? What, what... Where would you? Well, have... I'm a lefty, so okay. uh, there, it kind of limits me a little bit, right? Although back in those days when I did play like Little League, you know, they would, they would, the only position that I never played in Little League was catcher because they didn't have a catcher's glove for a lefty. So it got me out of that. But uh, for me, it was the outfield. And, uh, you know, I can send you some pictures uh, from when I was at uh, the Toronto Blue Jays fantasy camp a couple of years. I was going, I've got, and... I've got that on my list to talk to you about. <laughs> but yeah so i uh i did play i did play the outfield and that was probably the position i love shagging flies i could sit for hours and have someone just hit fly ball after fly ball to me uh despite the fact that there was a a bad rumor that i don't know how to catch fly balls because of one incident that happened but... <laughs> yeah i i do remember watching the clips and uh, i think josh donaldson and kevin pillar were, were somewhat ripping into your batting style at the time and on the, on that video but Kevin, yeah, yeah, they, uh, yeah, they, they, they gave me a hard time. But if you see at the end of that video, um, Lloyd Mosby hits a fly ball to me, I catch it, and Kevin Pillar was very impressed. So okay. I won. Yeah, I need to, I need to rewatch the, the good moments. But uh, <laughs> so, feel free to use it on your show. Absolutely, yeah, we'll have to, world, we'll have to catch. do. Like, yeah, guys, if you haven't listened or seen it, then it's definitely, definitely worth, de- worth a watch. Okay, so, so you've grown up, you, you love baseball you feel there's some sense of you know a destiny in terms of your parents upbringing and their showbiz and so on what mm-hmm. was your did did you go into sort of journalism first or how, how did those stepping stones towards becoming uh you know a jay's reporter it, it, it all kind of you know happened by accident and as i said you know had i not been laid off from my factory job 
1991, I think it was, uh, I wouldn't be sitting here chatting with you today. I mean, at, at the time, it was, you know, the most devastating thing that could ever happen. I've just lost my full-time job. What am I going to do? But as soon as I got into uh, the broadcasting uh, college, I, being a little bit older than the rest of the students there, many of them had come right out of high school and were, you know, 19 years old. And for them, they thought this was really cool. They could play radio. They could you know, make their parents happy by, by going to college, but at the same time, uh, do something that they thought was fun. But a lot of them weren't serious. And, you know, the first year, it's a two-year course. The first year we had, I think, 85 students. By year two, we were down to 65 students. Uh, by graduation, there was only 35 of us that actually graduated. And of that 35, maybe about 10 of us ended up getting careers in the industry. And, and it wasn't necessarily the most talented people. I remember saying to some of my friends there, like, you know, I wish I had this guy's voice. This guy, what a voice on this person. I don't have that voice. Um, but uh, there's more to it than just raw talent. Um, unlike baseball, I mean, if you suck and you're a nice guy, you're not going to make it. But in radio and in, in broadcasting, if you're able to do a decent job, but you had the right attitude, you had the right, the will and desire to get better and to, you know, fight for that because there were only so many jobs in this industry and there were more people interested than there were positions available. So I knew that I had to somehow either work harder or stand out from the crowd. And I've always just been someone that knew that if I needed something or I wanted something, I couldn't just sit and wait for it to be handed to me. I had to go for it. And that's what I did. And I, when I started at, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, but maybe you are because it's where the games are. It's the fan radio mm -hmm. out yep. here in Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, in 1992, early in 92, when I started there, they were not an all-sports radio station. That didn't exist in Canada at the time. They had the Blue Jay games on. They were starting to do a little bit of evening sports talk, but it was an oldies radio station. So I got in there not as a sports person. I got in there as someone who was a technical director. I worked overnight from midnight till 6 a.m., and I was literally just being the DJ without talking because the DJ was on tape. So I would play the songs, play the commercials, and press play, and the DJ would be there. And that's what I did. But while I was there, I started doing everything I could to make myself a better broadcaster. I'd pick up newspapers and read them out loud. I'd pick up cue cards that they had commercials written on them, read them out loud, and then start talking to anybody I could that could help me advance. And Jerry Howarth was one of the first people I met and my God, he was, and to this day still is, uh, one of my biggest influences and just a, just a tremendous human being and someone who's done so much for me. Him and Tom Cheek both, um, for some of your older listeners that may remember Tom, uh, these two guys are the ones that gave me my opportunity. And, you know, they saw something in me. And maybe a lot of it was the drive and determination I had. But uh, I was able to, to work my way in. And uh, I think the very first thing I did on air in radio was I was standing on a high school football field talking about two high school football teams that nobody really knew who they were because high school sports aren't really big here but we were trying to you know give them a little bit extra publicity and I've got one of those big huge old shoe phones you know the old self and that's what I was doing I was saying you know these two high school teams are playing and this is the score and blah 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 
And, but I realized that I can't walk in and say, well, listen, baseball is my forte. I'm going to be a baseball guy. I, I covered every sport. I covered cricket. Oh, God. I had never seen cricket before. I had no idea how the game worked. And they send me to this big India versus Pakistan cricket match. And I got there and I sat down with somebody whom I knew that had covered cricket. I said, okay, give me something. Overs, unders, wickets. I, I know in baseball, you're hitting the ball in the wrong direction. What's going on? So, I mean, I just did anything and everything that I could to become better. And as time went on and opportunities presented themselves, we need, we need somebody to go down and stick a microphone in front of Cito Gaston before the game. I'll do it. Well, you know, you're not going to be on the air or anything. You just basically, I'll do it. And that's what I did. And, uh, you know, lucky enough, that was 1992, which was a pretty damn good year in Blue Jays land. And then in September of that year, just in the midst of that playoff push, they go to all sports format on the radio station. So now I go from working overnights to working a day shift, pretty much still doing the same thing. But now I'm working on the board with a real live talk show happening. and volunteering to do stuff on the side and then they win the world series and then they win the world series again and i start building up some more but i did a lot of hockey coverage i was part of the the toronto raptors coverage for many years uh and i loved radio there was so much about radio that i absolutely loved but uh it didn't pay very well <laughs> and my dream was always tv so but i i kind of bided my time and i knew that you know, you only get one shot at this. You're going to work. And when you feel you're ready to, and I'm talking about myself, when I felt that I was ready to present myself or submit an audition, then I would do that. And it was really by accident again, because after 11 years at the fan, another radio station started up in Toronto, another sports radio station, and they started grabbing people from the fan by offering them almost double what we were making and offering us some wonderful things. And I remember saying to my wife, when they, they offered me a position, I said to my wife, I said, you know, this seems too good to be true. And she goes, well, you know, most times when things seem to be too good to be true, they are too good to be true. I said, I know, but I got to go for it. And I went for it and uh, I got doing a lot of incredible things. Uh, I was able to make a lot more money than I was making at the fan. They gave me a, a car to drive around. It was, it was wonderful, but uh, the radio station wasn't handled very well. Uh, their overall format, they, instead of going up against the fan, they decided we're going to make ourselves a national sports station. We're going to have affiliates all across Canada and we're not going to just be Toronto based. Okay. Well, that's fine, but people in Toronto don't want to hear about um, Manitoba's, you know, minor league hockey team but people there want to hear it and unlike the states where you could talk college sports all day and people are listening all over it doesn't work in Canada people are very much it I don't know if Canada is so much uh, an overall sports town or sports country as it is the loyalty to their team so it didn't work so 17 months after this thing went off on the air it got yanked off the air and we were all unemployed and thankfully, somebody I know that had worked with me had left a few months earlier, went to Sportsnet to work as a producer and said, they're looking for someone. Get me a tape. And uh, so I submitted a tape. They were looking for someone to follow the Toronto Maple Leafs for the entire season. And 
I said, okay, I mean, I've covered hockey before. I haven't done it in a while, but hey, full-time gig's a full-time gig. And uh, I was fortunate enough, they called me in and I got the job. And that first year I was at Sportsnet, I covered all 82 Toronto Maple Leaf games, practices on, on the off days, and then an entire playoff run. And right after that season, I, I was definitely burnt out, but I was, you know, keen on doing it for another year. Then there was a lockout. So hockey was done. So I jumped over to do basketball, but I still love baseball. So um, they didn't put as much emphasis on basketball as they did on hockey. So I had more spare time to cover baseball. So I would, you know, when I was doing hockey, it was hockey from the beginning of training camp to the end of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And then three months of nothing. I just had vacation. Once I moved into doing basketball, then I'm working all year round and I'm able to go start doing baseball. And that's where it just happened. And then they decided Rogers bought the Blue Jays. They wanted up the, the, the broadcast and do a little bit more in-depth stuff. So that got me on the road with them. And man, oh man, uh, you know, I think it was about 14 years of doing that on an everyday basis and uh, met a lot of amazing people, got to experience some incredible, incredible things. And, uh, you know, the, you know what, what better two years to go out than 2015 and 2016 right yeah so so how, how long were you doing the on-field stuff uh was, was it just over those two seasons was it prior to no I, no I, I mean um so i would say probably around 2004 2005 i started to do a little bit more and more and it kind of became a gradual thing whereas i used to be i'd be at a, a lot of the games sitting up in the press box and i do a little blurb before the game and i do a little blurb after the game and then as uh, probably around 2008, they became a little bit more involved in the actual broadcast. And then I got in, you know, in my little camera base spot and I got to be part of the broadcast. So um, I would say probably full time in that from 20, 2008 to 2015 yeah. or 22, 2016. Yeah, much, much, much long, longer. I, th I think because I, I remember bringing our fam my family over um for their first visit in 2013, which was a pretty rubbish year to come in terms of how the Jays were doing. Huh, that was the year they were supposed to win the World Series. It was. Yeah. I mean, I, up on the shelf over there, I've got magazines, Sportsnet magazines and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it was everywhere. This, this is the year, because we, we came right at the beginning of the, um, the season in April. And there was so much. Dickie had just arrived. You know, the, the whole thing was just pumping. Oh, yeah. Uh, Josh Johnson going to win the ERA title. I remember flying to Vegas right after that deal was made and you know, we went and did this whole feature I had his house in, in Las Vegas. And, you know, we were all so excited. This is going to be the year right now. You got Jose Reyes and you've got uh, Mark Burley and it's like, whoa, this team can't be beat. And, and I'm going to tell you that Steve, about two weeks into the season, um, they had played a double header in Detroit and they got slammed both games. I remember looking at some of the, my colleagues and we're like, uh-oh. And that was April. And it was like, uh-oh. And uh, they just never recovered from it. No, no, it was a, it was a complete washout. But I, what I, I remember is, well, in terms of coverage here, it's like any, everybody was a bit fickle. I think, you know, when your team's not doing so well, you don't tend to watch much. What everybody does remember, though, is 2015, 2016, because it was it was mega, wasn't it? I mean... What was that like to experience? On the right, I'm going to show you here. Okay, let's see if I can find it here. Oh, you know, I always. Oh, here we go. 
for, for your viewers, this is one of my most prized possessions, Steve. Okay. And I still have it. Ah, and for those that are only listening, you've got my list. I've got these my... are my these these were the goggles I wore in the clubhouse. Yeah. And they still smell like champagne. <laughs> okay. There's still the smell of champagne. That's... And of course, I, I had to take yeah. this hat too. I saw that. You know, yeah. um, these are great memories, right? I mean, I remember when that season started, and I think my thought was, you know, they're they're an average team. They're okay, you know. Uh, right around the all-star break, they were, they were a 500 team. I think a lot of fans were calling for Alex Anthopoulos to be fired. I think there were people, well, there were people in the Blue Jays organization that were already kind of putting that plan into place. They were looking for other people. They were interviewing other people and Alex knew. And yet somehow they gave him the autonomy to, make some moves at the deadline. And I think that in some ways they thought, you know, and again, I'm not speak. I don't want to speak for ownership or the upper management, but I think there may have been a part that said, you know, this, we're going to let Alex make these moves. And if they don't work, then we've got every reason now to, to put the final dagger in him. And he makes these moves and all of a sudden things turn around and they turn around fast. And I had actually gone away for a week on vacation uh, the day of the, the, the trade deadline, right around the trade deadline. And the last game I covered before I went on vacation, there may have been about 18,000 people at the games. It was quiet. I remember players would always say, you know, it's so weird being able to sit in the dugout and hear conversations. And that's what it was like. And then all of a sudden, you know, and I think, you know, specifically Tulowitzki and Price were the, were the names that really kind of like, whoa. And all of a sudden there was this electricity in the air. All of a sudden they started winning. And it went from 18,000 to 22,000 to 25,000 to 30,000. And now we're in the middle of August and the place is absolutely electric. Sellout crowds. It was just like the early 90s, but different in some ways because it was a lot more I mean, a lot more technology. And so a lot more people were doing different things. And uh, it was just so incredible. And seeing the team make the run that it did, you know, would have loved to have seen them go further. But hey, considering it had been since 93, since they were in the playoffs, we were just thinking this is the greatest thing in the world. Then 2016 happens and go figure they do it again. And, you know, both times they fell short. And I know they're, you know, I've spoken to a lot of the players from those teams and, you know, they can look back and say, if we had only done this or if only this had happened and, you know, we got that call, everything could have changed. Uh, I think they were good enough. I think they were better than, I, I, at least I think they were better than the Cleveland Indians in, in 2016. Um, Kansas City was pretty close. Kansas City had their their three guys in the back of the bullpen. And if you didn't have a lead before that, you were probably pooched. But um it was it was incredible to see the guys were just so for the most part pleasant to be around uh and it was just exciting to be on the field and for me to be in that clubhouse and be part of that celebration I mean here I was now I I, I just reverted back to that little boy who always wanted to be involved in baseball and here I was in the middle of the clubhouse having champagne poured on me like I was one of the players and 
for me, I always wanted to give the viewers, and this was really important to me, a sense that they were there. I wanted to give them, a, make me the in-between to help them relate to the players and know them as people. And I, I it meant so much to me to get texts and, and emails and whatever from fans saying thank you because it really made me feel like I was a part of that. And that's all I wanted to do. I never wanted to be this big shot, you know, reporter guy. I just wanted to be one of the guys. And uh, I, I loved every bit of that, Steve. It was, it was pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 for, obviously for most of us here, our experience is watching it through the screen. Um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we, we've had the privilege of being able to come to, to Toronto, see that, see that, uh, in person, but most of our experience now is is obviously watching it uh, on on screen. So, people like yourself it, is that that connection because you, you, as a fan, you watch these guys day in day out doing their stuff, and you start to feel like you know them like they're your, your, your best mate. And I think part of that is the role that you are playing in that and and helping oh, us opening that door. That makes me feel like it was all worth it because more than anything, that's all I ever wanted was to give the viewers that opportunity to be a part of it as well. And I, and the one photo or video memory that I seem to get more comments from than ever is my reaction to Jose Bautista's bat flip home run. Because, you know, as a reporter, I'm supposed to be prim and proper and get my tie all straight. And I stand there with no emotion on my face. And when that, whether it's a home run or a strikeout, I just sit there and go, okay, I make my nose. But when that ball left, that was, I was that 10 year old kid who was this big Blue Jays fan. That was 20 some odd years since they had been in the postseason, all built up. When that home run hit, went out, I just let it all out for a brief second. And then I collected myself and, okay, nobody noticed that. Okay, I'm good. I'm yeah. good. And of course, Everybody noticed that. <laughs> I'm, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that have a picture on their wall with his doofus in his suit like this as the ball's leaving the ballpark. Yeah, yeah high-fiving I, a cop. I, I just having a quick look to see. I've got Chris Ripley, um, who's from Calgary. Does uh, what a fantastic artist, Chris. He's is. brilliant. And I was just I'm looking at the back flip. I don't think he's just cut you out of that one. So you're not on my wall, unfortunately. But maybe I'm going to dig that what? out. What? Uh, okay, I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to have a talk with Chris. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just the way he's cropped the photo or cropped the drawing to uh, to to do that. That's okay. I'll so, forgive him. I mean, I, I was going to talk to you a little bit about the backflip game. I know we we've covered it a lot, but you bring a, a completely different perspective to the rest of us. You know, for for us, it was two thirty in the morning. Um, uh, and uh, I, I've it said, felt like two thirty in the morning in Toronto. I, 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 I'm sure. I mean, leading up to that moment, of course, it was chaos wasn't it uh, you know in terms of all that happened in terms of you know Russell throwing the ball back and hit and choose bat and and nobody seemed to know quite what the rule was was it alive was it what was what was what was it like because it felt, well, it felt quite volatile watching it on screen yeah and for the people that were there it's even worse because at least people watching at home and me because I've got my earpiece and I can hear the broadcasters trying to explain what could possibly have happened. But even then, we were unsure. You know, John Gibbons had no clue. And people were like rifling through rule books and going, hang on a second, where were, you know, we had no idea. But the fans there, they had no idea what was going on. So they react 
with anger. And things were flying onto the field. And I remember standing in the camera bay and I had a clipboard in my hand with notes on it. And I put it over top of my head because I said, I'm going to get hit with a can of beer. I'm going to get hit with something. And we were all starting to go, this is going to get like, we're going to see a riot here. I mean, all it's going to take is one angry fan that has, you know, a knife or a knitting needle or something. You know, I picture some 85 year old person with their knitting needle going, how dare you? You know, it was it was really scary. And, you know, eventually, you know, people calmed down. Thank God that it didn't take very long after the game resumed for the Jays to come back. And again, this is where Jose Bautista, for everything he was as a player and while he used to take his his frustrations and a lot of times it would become a negative for him. Uh, we saw him pretty much blow his arm out uh, trying to throw a Delman Young of the Baltimore Orioles at first base from right field because he was just so angry. But the other thing he could do was he could channel that emotion into something positive. And when he stepped up to the plate, I think he knew he was going to do something big. He had this ability to rise to the occasion. And I think as surprised and shocked as everybody was at the Rogers Center, I think the person who was the least shocked was Jose Bautista. And I think in some ways that was the bat flip. It wasn't like, oh, my God, I don't know. It's like, yep, I yep. did it. Yeah. You know, and, and, and call him egotistical if you want. But in a game like that, if you don't believe you're good, you're not good. And I think that 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 emotion, oh wow, it was it was pretty incredible. And you know, it's funny because you know the next year, and, and it kind of gets buried a lot, unfortunately, is Edwin Encarnacion's home run against Baltimore in the wild card game. And I mean, that was in some ways a more impactful home run than Bautista's, right? Um, and we don't talk about that as much. But it was, I think, what made that game. And, you know, I remember I had Ari Dickey on my podcast. And he remember him saying that, you know, one thing I've learned about baseball, and he goes, I've been in this game many, many years. And just when you think you've seen everything, you'll see something that you've never seen before. And he talked about how surreal that moment was and how it just, you almost thought if you believed in, in a higher power, if you believed, you know, in positive energy something weird happened and it wasn't the bat, the bat flip and it wasn't even russell martin hitting sinsu chu's bat it was one of the best defenses in the american league boot three consecutive routine ground balls i oh, know unbelievable it's like how is this happening yeah like why is this happening and there was just something in the air that day steve that it was all the cards were lined up for the Blue Jays to make this miraculous comeback. Yeah. Yeah. I remember saying to my daughter who stayed up with me that night to watch it after Russell Martin threw the ball back and all that ensued, just, we cannot lose the game on that. I mean, I was just pacing around our living room just, we cannot lose on that. And, and, yeah. uh, yeah, yeah. Imagine how Russell felt. I totally, I mean, we can see him, yeah. can't you on some of the clips after, um, after um, Jose's hit the ball out of the park, you know, he's putting his hands up and, you know, thanking whoever that he's got out of that hole. But, yeah, I mean, crazy, crazy stuff. What was it like 
interviewing John Gibbons then? <laughs> when? That night or anytime? Anytime. Just, uh, just Gibby. Yeah. Gibby, uh, he's his own wow. man, isn't he? He really is. And the funny thing is, you know, there were rumors out here in Toronto that John Gibbons had issues with me and he didn't like me. And whenever I tell him that, we would have such a laugh. He goes, my God, if I didn't like you, I'd never talk to you. The fact that I tease you and give you a hard time is because I like you. And we always would. And it took me a while to be able to give it back. And once I started to be able to give it back, then it just changed everything. But Gibby is just a real person who, you know, had baseball knowledge. He played the game. Uh, he wasn't great. And he had a lot of injuries. And, you know, some will say that he wasn't the most uh, strategic manager out there. He wasn't the most astute baseball person. But what he knew how to do was to put people in a position to succeed. And whether it's how he did the lineup, how he controlled his pitching staff, there were a lot of things. Now, I will say, and I even brought this up to Gibby, uh, I think he got a little panicky in that Kansas City series and made a few moves that maybe he regrets making. Uh, like when R.A. Dickey was cruising in a game as a starter and he pulls him after four innings or five innings and puts in David Price and Price gets let up. Um, there was no reason to pull R.A. Dickey. But again, you make mistakes. and. The nice thing about Gibby too was that he he would he would own up, right? Uh, he he was honest. He wouldn't BS. He would tell it like it is. And every conversation with him was fun. I mean, you'd sit there and talk to him on camera, and he'd be he'd have like barbecue sauce on his on his on his jersey, and you know he would have you know mustard stains on the corner of his mouth because he'd just have a hot dog he'd be holding back burps because he'd be drinking a beer and he'd be talking you know you, you know he's, he needs to burp real bad right and there was no one like Gibby no one like Gibby and uh one of my favorite people uh to talk to one of my favorite people that I've ever had to deal with uh and I was so happy when he came back because we all missed him as a person uh you know reporters can say what they want say it's all business but Everybody loved Gibby. Yeah. yeah. One of my little memories was my last game that I saw live in Toronto was Gibby's last home game uh, at uh, Rogers. So that was nice to, to be there for that, that moment. Uh, I think we played the Astros that day. and um, We all knew it was his last game too. Yeah. Yeah. It was sad, sad, sad times. And I think, you know, for Charlie coming in, obviously there's been a lot of comparisons in terms of the complete opposite ends of the scales in terms of personality and style and, and, and all those sort of things. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about the 2021 20, team in a, in a moment. I just wanted to, one last, one last memory back from sort of 15 yeah. to 16. Uh, Kawasaki. <laughs> Discuss. Muninori um, Kawasaki. You know, I, uh, I ended up developing a great relationship with him and, Thanks to Muninori Kawasaki, a few of the interviews I did with them were like viral in Japan. You know, I looked on YouTube. It's like over a million views. This is insane. How did this happen? Um, and I wasn't even the first one to ever do an interview with him on the field. That was uh, one of my colleagues, Arash Madani, because I was off that day. And when he hit the big home run and I'm like, when I saw that interview, I said, OK, I need to talk to this guy more often. And we had such a great time. He was always. And the thing is, 
um, he would always be really worried after we do an interview that he was too funny because he said if his mom and dad watched it and they saw him being funny, he'd get in trouble for it. And, uh, and again, maybe he was making that up. I don't know. But he seemed pretty sincere about that. But my favorite memory, and I did a number of interviews with him, but probably my favorite one was when we were in the clubhouse after they clinched, I think it was in Baltimore. Yeah, it was, it was in Baltimore. And uh, I started asking him a question and he told me, uh, I need to rephrase it in Japanese because he's too drunk to speak English. <laughs> and he was like, Kawa too drunk, Kawa too drunk. <laughs> and uh, oh, and I remember when his, his baby was born and he was so proud of his baby and being, from, being born in Canada, they always called him a Canuck, oh, my, my little Canuck, right? Uh, just a really, really great guy. And when he left, uh, I remember in 2016, uh, when I, I covered the World Series, and he was part of the Chicago Cubs organization. And he wasn't on the playoff roster, but they had him in the dugout. They wanted him in uniform and with the team because he had that presence. He had a way of building him up. You know, if he was a better baseball player, man, it would have been so awesome. He would have had an incredible career. And he wasn't terrible. He wasn't terrible. But he was just average. He was an average baseball player. He was more uh, valuable to the team because of what he brought into the clubhouse than what he brought onto the field. And But he always played his ass off, though, too. I mean, he never, he never dogged it out there. He always ran hard to first. He always ran for every ball. He would always do, if they, if they needed a bunt, he would try to bunt, right? He would do what was needed to be done. But Munenori Kawasaki was, you know, I, was favorite a and then the minute he leaves that spot gets quickly filled by joe biagini i was gonna say biagini was also yeah off the wall in, in a different way and my god the, the fun that i had uh with joe biagini and, and the pleasure i've actually had to have him on my podcast a number of times even chatting with some of his fans which was just so terrific but you know, one of my favorite actors is Will Ferrell, and I've never met Will Ferrell, but I have a feeling that if I did, he would be a lot like Joe Biagini. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if there was ever a Joe Biagini movie, Will Ferrell would be the one that would have to play yeah. Joe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he never gave you a straight answer. The I mean, never. To, to whoever he was talking to. And I would say, a lot of people thought that this was an act, that this was something he put on. This was Joe. This this is exactly who Joe is. He's a little bit awkward. He's, uh, you know, has a very strange sense of humor. Uh, I remember meeting his parents in San Francisco and, you know, uh, they were hippies, right? They were just totally like, uh, okay, now I see exactly where Joe became Joe. You know, he's, he's just like his parents. And uh, by the way, uh, Joe got married this uh, about a few months ago. Nice. So he's found Excellent. someone that's willing to spend a lot of time with him. Yeah, good lad. Well done. Excellent. Congratulations yeah. to those guys. If you've got a story to tell, send us an email, bluejaysfansuk at gmail.com. Now, back to Red, White, and Blue Jays. Last memory from, from that, that era was there was a certain T-shirt that was made in your honor. I have one. I have one upstairs, Do you? actually. Yeah, so just give us the, the, the backdrop to so, that in case some people don't know. It was around know. the trade deadline. Uh, the Jays had gone past the trade deadline. I don't think they made very many moves. This was in 2016. I don't think they did much. And I remember after a game, 
Uh, one of my jobs was whoever the hero of that game was, I would do a quick little interview with him on the field at the end of the broadcast. And it was Josh Dawson. And I remember saying to him, so, you know, the team pretty much stayed put. Uh, you know, what do you think of, of this group moving forward? And he just looked at me and he goes, we like our team, Barry. And then he goes, this gives a little nod to the camera and walks off. Well, at the time, you know, I didn't think much of it. All of a sudden this became, people were coming to the games with signs saying we like our team, Barry. And the folks at the Jaywalk and any of you out there who are interested in really cool you know, off-brand, you know, Blue Jay related uh, gear, uh, Jaywalk, great, great place. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, they actually made a t-shirt with Josh's face and with that look saying we like our team, Barry. And there were coaches on the Blue Jays uh, squad that were wearing them under their uniforms uh, in the clubhouse, which was really cool. I, it's, yeah, I, th I think where you get that connection between people like yourself and the team and stuff, it, it, it makes people like us watching in from the outside how much the whole thing is a, it's essentially a family working together, isn't it? You're all doing your jobs, but you're so interlinked between each other. You know, the, the players aren't separate from, from you media guys and, and, and so on. And I think... It oh, please feel free to let my former bosses at Sportsnet know how you feel. Yeah, no, it <laughs> well, I think, I think it's important to say because we are the recipients of all the hard work that people like you uh, and the team and the backroom staff and everybody else who's involved in the organisation. It's, it's an entertainment business at the end of the day. And Absolutely. And we, we get entertained and, and whatever cog that might be, might be a small one, it might be a larger one. It all knits together, and uh, I think I think certainly for me, I have lots of fond memories of that that era, and and a lot of them were in and around interviews that you did, and and, and memories. Well, that means you. that means a lot to me, Steve, and so, that makes it all worthwhile to me. And you know, I know there are some people that have done the, the type of job I did, and for them, it's like you know, how many stories did you break, and you know, what did you uncover, and you know, but for me, it was if, if I was able to reach someone like you. If I was able to be, you know, you're in to get to know who these people were as human beings, because we see them as, you know, rock stars. We see them as superheroes. We don't really see them as human beings. And that's all I ever wanted to do was find out who they are. And a lot of that came from what Jerry Howard taught me, which was, you know, and that was one thing that Jerry was so good at in the booth because when you're doing a radio broadcast of baseball, there's a lot of dead air. There's a lot of time where there's nothing happening. And you don't have the pictures like you do in baseball, right? And this is why when they decided to get rid of the radio broadcast and just simulcast the TV, it didn't work. Because if you're listening, you'd be listening, there's like nothing. Because, you know, Buck Martinez, Dan Schulman, their job is to, you know, add what needs to be added, but they don't have to tell you every single thing that's happening because we can see it. In radio, it's different. You have to paint the picture. And Jerry always got to know the players as people. And, you know, someone would come to the plate and when there's a little break between pitches, he would share a story about them as human beings. And I always thought that to me, I find a lot more interesting and it opens it up to so much more because now, you know, you have a, a little better idea of, you know, who Jose Bautista is or who Josh Donaldson is. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think Jerry Howarth, uh, you know, he's, it well, certainly comes across as the perfect gentleman 
in terms of how he handles himself. And uh, I know a couple of the guys yeah. here in the UK have had uh, some contact with him over the years. And uh, yeah, he's always super polite and uh, yeah, a, mm-hmm. a voice miss. And it, and it, it sort of brings together the the mad decision last year to put the radio broadcasters as the TV coverage because it just didn't work on radio. I, I know why they did that or, you know, because of the COVID situation and so on, but um, mm-hmm. yeah. And I'll give Dan Shulman credit. He did the best. Oh, totally. And this was in no way uh, a slam on, on any of them in the booth. Not until. Because it's a totally different type of broadcast and it's very very hard to come up with something in the middle and and thank god they finally realized that midway through the season and uh they bet they brought ben wagner back into the booth to do the radio yeah yeah no absolutely so you've mentioned a couple of guys obviously from the 2015-16 season who brought a lot to the team in terms of presence uh Mm -hmm. as opposed to just pure sort of baseball skills which I think it's a good segue in terms of looking at our current team and where we came through 2021, where mm-hmm. a lot of sort of camaraderie between the players seemed to be very apparent, the home run jacket, all that sort of stuff, which brought some a flavour to the team, I think, that was more than just about being great baseball players. How did you see the 2021 season? And this is, you know, I'm glad, I'm really glad you brought this up, Steve, because I'm going to tell you an example. So you go back to 2013. I remember from the day spring training started till all the way through the season, you would have a group of Dominican players that would all hang out together and would do their thing in spring training. And then you'd have a group of American players that would go do their thing. And then another group of these guys that would do this thing. And as the season went on, they had their little groups, right? I mean, you know, there would, this this part of the clubhouse would be all the Dominican guys. This would be all the, the guys that are from, you know, the southern states. And, you know, and it was just like all these different groups. But what I'm seeing with this squad is that they're all just one big family. And I, that is what I love so much about the home run jacket. It's not so much the, the, you know, oh, look, a home run jacket. It's what it represents. All the flags on the back. You know, the fact that we are all together you know, we're a group, we're a family, we're a team. doesn't matter if you're from the Dominican or from the States or, you know, from the UK, you know, you're all one big group. And that's what I loved about that, Jack. And I do admit, yeah, that there was something and still is something really special about the team. And one of the reasons behind that, Steve, is that this was a group of players that a lot of them started at low A ball together, worked their way up to double A, to triple A, and had made the team. So this wasn't just a you know, a patchwork team. These are guys that have been playing together for so many years. And yeah, you add a few extra pieces in there and they fit in really nicely. But the core of the group, you know, Vladimir and Bo, uh, Biggio, uh, Danny Jansen, uh, these guys all grew up in the in the game, in the system together. They know each other so well. And I think that, that that really, really does help. And I'm really excited. Well, I was excited until I kind of realized that there's probably not going to be a baseball season until June or July. But uh, when it does resume, God, it makes me depressed just to talk about it because this is the worst possible time for there to be a work stoppage. Honestly, this is just really, really, really terrible timing. And they've got to get their heads out of their asses and get this thing settled because we as, as a society, with everything we've been through for the last three years with COVID, 
we need this. This is this is really good for our mental health to be able to watch baseball, have an escape, have some sense of normalcy, know that we can go to a ball game, or we can turn on the TV and watch the game. My God, I got this brand new virtual reality headset, and I keep thinking, oh, I want to watch a Jays game in VR, right? But, you know, I'm going to have to wait, and it's unfortunate. And what's even more unfortunate is that this is a, a team that, yeah, they lost Robbie Ray, and yeah, they lost uh, Simeon, but honestly, these those two guys were not going to be part of the long-term future of the Jays. These guys were holding spots and make the team competitive until the young guys were ready to come in. And now these young guys are ready. And yeah, they'll probably still want to bring in some free agents to, to kind of, you know, give a little bit of that. But I have no issue with Ray and Simeon not being back simply because these guys both came off career years. And I always, when I, when I judge a player, I say, are they having an average year, a below average year, or an above average year? Simeon and Ray both were off the charts above average years. The chances of them being able to repeat that are pretty slim. And even if they did next year, then what about the year after that and the year after that? Because they're, they're signing these long-term contracts. And now you've got all money tied up in these two guys that aren't part of your real future. Instead of spending that money on people that are going to be the group, you know, extend Vladdy, extend Bo, sign a young player that wants to be a part of this organization for the next 10 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. It, it's, it's an exciting core. I think what's exciting for me is that the vast majority of them are coming back. So I think everything that got built up through 21, yeah. we're going to see played out into, well, hopefully into 22 at some, at some point. Um, what was your what was your feelings on the last day of of twenty one season? Were you excited, disappointed? How how did that emotion sit with you on oh, that I day? Mean, yeah, it's a little of both. I think that uh, a lot of my friends were a little bit surprised with how I was taking a positive spin on it because yeah, it's disappointing. You want to see them go on. You want to see them make a run. But I also knew that. This is not like, you know, the 2016 team, it was really disappointing because you knew that the, the core of that team had already had their best years and they were going to have to tear down and not because they were giving up, but because these guys were not going to be what they were. And we've seen it. We've never seen Jose Bautista be back to where he was. We've never seen Russell Martin get back to that. I mean, neither of them are in the game anymore. Edwin's on his last legs. Josh Donaldson has had spurts, but he's been injured a lot. So really, I mean, who from those teams has come back to haunt them? And even David Price hasn't been playing much, right? So that was disappointing because you knew that was that was it, man. That was, that was this group's last shot. Uh, for this group, at the end of 2021, okay, you know, let's move on to 2022 and see where this team can go now because it's going up. This team is going to get better. These young players are going to get better and better, and they're going to add. Um, so I was I was able to say, listen, man, this was a lot more than I had ever expected. When you consider this is a team that for two seasons plus didn't play a home game, they had split time between Buffalo and Florida. Uh, they were playing, you know technical home games 
where their crowd was more than split. It was like the Blue Jays going into Seattle and what it was like for the Seattle Mariner fans to know that they're being outnumbered by Blue Jay fans. That's what it was like for the Jays for those those years. So um, you definitely have to cut them some slack for that because there's a lot more to it than I think a lot are giving credit for. Bottom line is this team is loaded with young, exciting talent that have their best years still ahead of them. So I the only thing stopping them now is bloody lockout and uh, greed for this money that both sides seem to have. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's hope something happens soon. I don't think it will happen soon, but let's hope, you know, certainly this year that mm. we, we get some sort of baseball, even if it's we have to put up with a short shortened season. But um, I know we're desperate, desperate to see it. 7 p.m. first pitch in Toronto. Midnight first pitch in London. We're Blue Jays fans UK. And we stay up late. You're listening to Red, White and Blue Jays. We're sort of coming towards the end, Barry. Thank you so much for for your time. So what I've done with every guest, I've just got final 10 questions, which we're going to do, which will cover sort of the rapid fire, rapid fire sort of stuff. Um, And then we'll close out. We'll just hear a little bit about your, your music stuff and what you're doing now before we, 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 we say goodbye. But favorite player from 21 uh vladdy okay that was nice and short uh favorite player of all time favorite blue jay player of all time yeah jay's player yeah okay uh jesse barfield by far and you know i grew up watching you know from from the beginning from 77 on and when Barfield, Bell, and Mosby started out as an outfield. That was the most incredible thing. And and here's a cool little story. So I was 16 years old. I had my first part-time job. And I was working in a shoe store at a mall. Uh, It was in the suburbs. And a lot of the players kind of lived in the suburbs back then. And one day I come out from the back of the stock room. And there looking at a pair of shoes were Lloyd Mosby and Jesse Barfield. (laughs) <laughs> and I sold a pair of shoes to Lloyd Mosby and it was the most incredible thing. Wow. And what brought everything full circle was when I had the opportunity to be part of the Blue Jays broadcast and they started bringing the alumni in, I started to get to know these guys and I got to become friends with them. And then I got to be part of the, the fantasy camp. And, uh, and now, you know, I chat with Jesse, I chat with Lloyd and it's very surreal for me because you know, in some ways, these are the guys, these were my heroes. And now I'm able to chat with them. So, you know, Jesse, for sure, just from the way he played the game and, and even more just the, the kind of person he is. Um, so I, I probably had, but I had, I had different favorite players pretty much from every year from 77, right on, on all the way up. Right. I can imagine. Yeah. No, that's a brilliant story. So who's your favorite non-Jays player? Uh, well, I grew up, uh, loving the Cubs and I grew up loving the Reds and, but surprisingly, I think my favorite player growing up, geez, I loved Pete Rose. And I know it's, you know, almost politically incorrect to say that now, but I just love the way the guy played the game. Uh, I loved how hard he played the game. Uh, as time went on, I began became to really really uh love and respect the kind of game cal ripkin played uh but 
I love the guys that just played their hearts out. Uh, Kirby Puckett, someone that I just loved watching play, uh, you know, because he didn't have that prototypical baseball body, but he gave it everything he had. So, yeah, those were some of my my favorites. But it's so hard. It's like if you were to ask me what my favorite Beatles song is, I couldn't tell you because they're all so important to me. Sure. Um, there's so many players that I love. So for me to be able to point out a few of them, I, I'm actually yeah. surprised I was. Yeah, very good. Um, your favorite ballpark away from Rogers? Oh, man, there's another tough one. I get asked that all the time, and there's probably about five or six that are tied for first place. But I will say Petco Field in San Diego yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, is an absolutely yeah. beautiful place. Uh, and I still have to say Camden Yards, you know, I just, yep. you know, because I've been there so often now, you know, you kind of get used to being there. But when I sit back and reflect on how incredible that ballpark is, I think Camden Yards. And that was really the first of the retro stadium. Yeah, it's not that right? old, is it? You know, Rogers Center. Yeah, I mean, everyone was trying to be Rogers Center for a while. And then all of a sudden they built Camden Yards. And now everybody is going to Camden Yards. From a fan's perspective, uh, Wrigley Field, because that's where I saw my first Major League Baseball game. I have family from Chicago. And in uh, 1976, I went with my older brother and we saw a doubleheader between the Cubs and the Reds, a scheduled doubleheader. So I got to see Pete Rose and Johnny Bench and, oh, my God. Joe Morgan, all these guys from the Reds play a doubleheader against the Cubs. Tom Seaver pitched one of the games for Cincinnati. It was it was really really cool. In fact, my my older brother and I um, we got a pro like a, one of the programs and we forged a bunch of uh, signatures and showed all our friends. Said, look at all these autographs we got. <laughs> Amazing. It's not the most comfortable ballpark to sit in, but uh, certainly from a historical yeah. point of view, it's an, it's an amazing place, Wrigley. Okay, your favorite baseball food. <laughs> and this, um, is, this is this is high high questioning barry you know we, yeah uh foot long hot dog okay foot long oh yeah good stuff yeah yeah okay okay and your favorite drink to go with your hot dog well you know i i like my i like my beer but not when i'm at a ball game I never liked to drink when I was at a game for some reason. So for me, it would just be a big, big thing of Coke. Okay. Nice and simple. Day game, yeah. day game or night game? Day game. Day game. Go on then. Why? I love the sun. You okay. guys don't get much of it, but you know, I, I love the sun. Okay. That's fair enough. Your favorite Jay's jersey color? <laughs> uh, well, you got, you got the a blue right blue, there. Blue right behind you. Yeah. They're all blue. Yeah. Very good. And well, that might be the next answer. Your favorite um, jersey number? You know what? The nineteen is just a coincidence, and Bautista thought that I did that in honor of him. Oh, I was just wondering. <laughs> yeah, when I was a kid and I played hockey, that just used to be the number they assigned me. Okay. And so nineteen just became the number I used. And uh, when I got to fantasy camp, that was the number they gave me. Okay, very nice, excellent. And roof open, roof closed. Roof open. Every time. Roof open. Yeah. Oh, every time. Yeah, if you like day games. Roof should be open unless there's a torrential downpour. Yeah. So maybe you can answer me this question, because I've been debating this a couple of times with the guys, is at the um, World Series games, why do they always keep the roof closed, even if it's a clear night? It It's a decision that's made by Major League Baseball, and they feel that 
they want to keep it consistent. So if the roof is open at the beginning of the game, it needs to stay open the whole game. Uh, they don't want to change the conditions midway through. So they felt the easiest way to do that, that time of year where the weather was cooler, or whatever, is just keep the thing closed. I hated it. Yeah. I hated it. Yeah. Um, we always used to say, come on, please open the bloody roof, right? It would be open for batting practice. Yeah. And we'd all get excited saying, it's going to be open. And then we'd yeah. close. Like, yeah. Oh, come yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. One of those mad decisions. Barry, so good to hear your Blue Jays memories. I mean, you just bring to life a lot of the things that, you know, as you've been talking, just takes me back to the things I remember as, as a fan and really love just hearing hearing you again. Uh, you know, we definitely miss miss your input into our lives through through the uh, format that you, you you came previously. So thank you so much for, for spending some time. Just as we sort of close out, just tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. I, I know your music's uh, mm. sort of heavily involved in. Just just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, for a day job, I'm, I'm selling cars. So if anybody out there in the UK wants to come to Ontario and buy a Honda, okay, I'm your guy. Very okay. good. Um, music has always been something that was a part of my life. As we talked about at the beginning, I was just 16. When I got into broadcasting, I literally gave up performing. Um, in fact, I didn't even think I picked up a guitar for many years, but it was over 25 years between performing on stage. And what got me back up was uh, my son at the time, I think he was eight or nine years old. He was taking drum lessons. And at the end of their year, all the students get to go to a club set up and they had a band made up of the teachers and they could play a song with the band and at a nightclub. And uh, my drum teacher, my son's drum teacher was also my podcast host, Matt McFarlane at the time. And Matt said, well, why don't you come up on stage with your son and play the song on guitar? I'm like, <laughs> no, I couldn't do that. Yeah, do it. So I picked up my guitar, started learning, and I went up on stage and I played Highway to Hell with my eight-year-old son. And Amazing. when I was back on stage, it hit me and went, oh my God, now I remember what I love so much about being on stage and performing. Yeah. And a few weeks after that, I uh, just... I'd watched the documentary on Tom Petty and I just got, I always loved Tom Petty, but after seeing the story, I said, I want to play his music. So I sent out a, just a request on Facebook. I said, does anybody want to get together and jam some Tom Petty songs? I'm thinking about putting a band together. First person that reached out to me was the guy who played guitar for me in 1986. And, and you know, we'd spoken once in a while, but we weren't seeing each other or hearing from each other very often. I'd love to do that. Mm. Boom. And then we get him and then I get Matt to play drums. And next thing you know, I've got this Tom Petty tribute band going. And, you know, if it weren't for COVID, we'd still be going strong. But we're, sure. we're now getting back at it. We're, uh, we've got a big outdoor festival we're playing at the end of March. And uh, I'm a little afraid because it's still going to be a little chilly. I was going to say, that's going to be a bit cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, we're just thrilled to be back. Great. So that was band number one. Um, I was also a big fan of the cars growing up. And I know the cars had a huge following in England. They yeah, were at one point bigger, bigger in England than they broke in England before they broke in the States. Um, but I always loved the band. And in 1984, they put out their album heartbeat city. And I was in grade 10, maybe at the time. And a friend of mine who was a musician, he was a big cars fan too. He said, Hey, let's you and I put together a cars tribute band. I said, oh, I'm in, I'm in a band and we're going to make it big. So I, I can't leave this band because, you know, we're, we're going to be rock stars. But thank you for your offer. And of course, we never became rock stars. Mm. And all these years later, 
I finally lived that dream and I put together this car span. Unfortunately, my buddy who pitched the idea to me had passed away uh, maybe three or four months before we put the band together. So we never got a chance to see us, you know, build it to fruition. And we're just starting to to perform again, too. We've got, uh, you know, our first post-COVID gig coming up uh, on the 4th of March. I don't know why I'm, like, advertising this like someone's hey, going to hop on a plane. About this. <laughs> but, you know, if you ever are. In, in, in oh, we got people in Canada who listen in. So, uh, yeah. And during COVID, uh, the guy I, I became really good friends with and doing a podcast with Tom Forth, we just decided during COVID, because we were already in each other's bubble, we just started playing Beatles songs together acoustically. And that grew into what we call Nowhere Men. And as we speak right now, uh, we're opening uh, for a band that was big in the 80s. Well, a couple of, it's just two of the members of the band. They were called the Romantics. Yeah. And they had a song, What I Like About You. And they're performing tonight. And we're opening for them doing our little Beatles uh, duos thing. Hey, nice. So, yeah. So what I'm going to ask you, Steve, um, you know, do a little research, find out some clubs that are interested in, you know, either a Petty or a Cars or a Beatles. Well, probably not Beatles because, you know, we'll get our asses kicked out there. <laughs> but Cars are, 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 are Tom Petty. Okay. And, you know, get us two weeks worth of gigs and yes. we'll be on a plane. And yeah. I'd love, oh, my God, I'd love to tour. Come on. UK. Yes. Guys, if there's anybody out there linked into the music industry, particularly, get Barry. Yes booked yes we we, we should Please. we should we should get that out and uh, out on social media and see what we can do for you but um that's right yeah that's right. totally <laughs> barry thank you so much for your time today it's great to hear you again as i said and uh, really enjoy just hearing your stories and your memories and is exactly what this pod is all about is is hearing life from your perspective and uh, you certainly brought it in a multicolored way today. So I thank you so well, much. Well, thank time. you. I really appreciate it, Steve. And, you know, I was telling you before we began that, you know, for the last year or so, I've been starting to put together my stories to, to write a book. And it's been months since I've actually gotten into working on it. You know, it kind of go in phases. But I think chatting with you today has kind of rekindled a lot of those memories. So I have a feeling that yeah. I'm going to be back on my laptop uh, Definitely. in the next couple of days working on that book again. Yeah, do it. I'm sure there'll be a lot of people, certainly from here, that would be delighted to to read some of those stories again. Because, it, as I say, I'll you... bring copies when we come yes, to our tour. Absolutely. <laughs> Sign copies. Brilliant. Barry, That's right. just, just reminded everybody where they can still find you. Obviously, you've got your pod and bits and pieces. Just give us a few of your social yeah. handles we haven't done it we haven't done a new pod in quite a while i've just my my life's been so busy and uh but we have all of our episodes that are still up uh at uh, we're on spotify and all of the places you get uh, you know podcast itunes out of the park um there's tons of episodes that we've done we've spoken to blue jay players from pretty much every uh era out there and again, it, it, the, it's the stories about them as people and mm. whether it be, you know, Jose Bautista or Chris Colabello or Devin Travis or Lloyd Mosby or any of the blue, like we've spoken in Gibby many times, Gibby mm. and Joe Biagi. Uh The one on my list that I still haven't been able to reach is, is Muninori Kawasaki. And somehow it's still my goal. If I can get Muni, I'm, I'm bringing the podcast back and that's going to be my first episode. <laughs> De- totally. Yeah. No, I, I've listened to many of your your pause and they are oh, br- they you. are brilliant so guys make- oh that's that's very kind of you but yeah. uh, you can get you find me on twitter uh, at barry davis underscore uh apparently there's another barry davis that took my handle 
and uh, he won't give it up. He's like an 82-year-old guy who never tweets, and he won't give up his handle. So <laughs> I, I'm underscored. Yeah, absolutely. Go go find Barry. Thank you so much for your time today. Love chatting with you. Steve, this was a blast. Anytime. No problem. Guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Barry. Please do keep in touch. Uh, we'd love to hear anybody's stories about the Blue Jays. Uh, so don't forget, you can get hold of me in the new, usual places. Uh, all the details are at the end of the pod as usual. But for now, thanks so much for listening and we'll catch up with you soon. Take care. Bye. The Red, White and Blue Jays podcast is a production of Blue Jays Fans UK. If you've got a Blue Jays story to share, let us know. Email us at bluejaysfansuk at gmail.com. And follow along on Twitter and Instagram at bluejaysfansuk. I'm your announcer, Jim Langton. Thanks for listening. <laughs>